We are in the, the midst of Ephesians, um, well, actually, in the very beginning of Ephesians, and, and we said that, the, that after the opening greeting, right, the first couple verses, then verses 3 all the way through the end of what we will look at today, verse 14, is a singular, it's a singular sentence in the Greek, 202 words. It begins with an idea of the blessedness of God. It's what uh, the Hebrews would call a barakah, which is the Hebrew word for blessing. And you find that in the Old Testament in particular, like in the, in the Psalms, and uh, um, uh, sometimes like in the narratives when someone breaks out in a praise for the Lord. Um, you see that even in, uh, um, in Mary when she finds out she's going to be uh, pregnant with our Lord. Right? Like there is this kind of Blessed be God who has looked upon me. Blessed be God. It's just this acknowledgement, this almost like song of praise that just simply says God is so good that we ought to say something about how he ought to be blessed in our minds, in our souls, that his name should be magnified, that he should become great because of who he is. That's a barakah. And so this entire barakah is about God and everything that he has done. In particular, it is focused around the elements of gospel victory. It's about the heritage of the gospel, certainly. And in the middle of that, at the center of that, is the person of Jesus Christ. We'll say more about this this morning, but the idea of in Christ, in him, in Jesus Christ, is is a concept repeated throughout the New Testament. And that's the very center of our gospel identity. But it's not just about us. But it's about the fact that anything that is good and excellent, that brings forgiveness of sins and redemption, has been all accomplished in the person of Jesus. He's the center. And without that center, there is no gospel. But the effects of the gospel is us. Redeemed from different backgrounds, from different cultures, whether we are Jews or Gentiles, whether we are Bruins or Trojans, whether we are, right, like whatever different kind of component individuals and where we come from in, in this life and where the Lord has placed us, he has brought us together again through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a, a unity that is shared, a commonness that is shared. And I was talking to one of the brothers and we were talking about how no matter where you go in the world, right, when you're visiting other nations, other cultures, when you find Christians there, you may not even be able to express everything because your language barrier. But there's something that is common with them and you. Because as human beings, created in the image of God, broken and sinful, undeserving of God's mercy and grace, we have found the gospel to be beautiful and excellent and transformative. And we share that same identity. We share that same heritage. We are one people. And all of this with an expressed end to God's glory so that he would be magnified, so that the greatness of God would be declared for all of eternity, not necessarily or exclusively in the fact that he is big or that he creates a lot of stuff. He's created literally a universe filled with unimaginably creative stuff. Not only that he is righteous or pure or holy or just, all of that is magnificent and true. But according to this Barakal, one of the main reasons we will be praising the glory of our God is his glory is particularly found for us 
in the gospel, in his rescue of us from our sins, in the endless nature of his grace and mercy, of how good God is to us, not because we deserved or because we're a little bit better than someone else, but because that's who God is. Exalt him for his love and mercy. That, that's the point. And so as we prepare for this message, like I said, I'll, I'll say a little prayer for our, our moms and our sisters. And then we will, um, we will dive into verses 11 through 14. But let me read you the entire barakah, the entire segment. And as I do, would you try to train your mind as you're looking at the, the scriptures, would you train yourself to pick up the in hymns in Christ through him, like, like everything that is focused on the person of Christ, and let that just kind of bear itself out in the way that you're thinking about this word of blessing, um, this poem, this song of blessing for who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you as we gather again to worship you to unpack the scriptures, to sing your praise, to fellowship and encourage, to pray for one another, to care for one another. We thank you for this, uh, this time of assembly. And even as we thank you for the church gathered and our time of worship and acknowledgement of all, all good things that you do, but one of those things that we, we celebrate today are our moms. And perhaps for some of us, it is the memory of our moms with thankfulness for all that they were in our lives. For some of us, it may be more complicated because our relationship with our moms were, were more difficult or remained difficult. But Father, nevertheless, we look to recognize that what sin has broken and what has, what has been a difficult journey for, for so many is not because of your goodness or your lack of goodness. It's because of the brokenness of this world. So we want to lift up and thank you for the moms here who in their imperfections are doing the best they can to honor you and to care for those that you have entrusted to their care. We ask that you give them grace and you remind them of their uniqueness and their value. 
Lord, we pray for those young ladies who strive and desire one day to be married or to be moms, or maybe those that are struggling with infertility. We pray and lift them up, these sisters that we love and cherish, that you remind them of their value and how much you care and love for them, and that it is ultimately in your hands, and that you choose, and you give, or you do not. But blessed be the name of the Lord. And Lord, for all of us, as we look to your scriptures today, Lord, help us to be thankful because the message and the heritage of the gospel and Jesus Christ is offered to every soul here. So that we, we, aren't, we aren't consumed by an identity, by a role, by a fulfillment, by something that we feel like we need in this life so that this life is good, but instead we can literally define our life as good because of the goodness of our God and what he has done for us in rescuing our souls through Jesus Christ. We thank you for this good message, for this good news, and ask that, uh, that this good news would be an encouragement to us this morning as we celebrate Mother's Day, but all the more that as we celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, the heritage of the gospel for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So our passage is verses 11 through 14, which will finish off this, uh, this song of blessing. And, um, and as you can see, the outline might strike you as a little unusual in that I, I, I put these two major points. The first is about the Jewish inheritance in Christ, verses 11 through 12. The second is about the Gentile inclusion in Christ, verses 13 through 14. And I'm saying that that might be surprising to you because even as we read the passage this morning before we began... You might look back and think, well, I don't remember it saying anything about Jewishness, right? Or Gentileness. Why is Nam inserting these kind of concepts into the text? And, and it's really <clears throat> the significance of personal pronouns. I don't know if you noticed that, but when we read verse 11 and 12, it says in him, we have obtained an inheritance, right? And it goes on to verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory, but there's an, not a subtle, but an absolute contrasting shift <clears throat> from the first person, we, to the you in verse 13. So that by the time we arrive in verse 13, it says, In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you're sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. And then back to the first person, plural, or, or the, right, like the first person, like we, in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And now it seems to be both Jews, Gentiles, all those that are considered believers, redeemed by the blood of Christ, all the same. It is all of us, our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So that's why we're saying that there is, there is a little bit of difference here. And I think uh, this, this paints the way, this foreshadows what Paul will address to the rest of Ephesians in ter terms of saying that there is a new man. There is no longer Jew and Gentile. There's no longer separation amongst cultures, amongst people. But there is one new humanity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll get there, but Paul is foreshadowing that even as he talks about the blessing of the inheritance to the Old Testament chosen people and how the New Testament, the, the Gentile, the, the outsiders have now also been included into that gospel of grace. But let's begin here with the, the Jewish inheritance in Christ. There it goes. 
Verses 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That's a mouthful. And the entire Barakah has so much like theological kind of concepts all kind of woven throughout. And so we want to take this apart little by little. But the first thing we want to see is in verse 11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And obtained an inheritance. That term for inheritance, it means to be chosen by lot. And it comes to be said that that there is a heritage, something that is given to us, something that is a blessing to us, right, that is granted to us in the person of Christ. And now, if if I'm, I, I should probably be more particular. In the language of verse 11, in Christ, it is we. He uses the we. And when Paul uses the we in this particular instance, verses 11 and 12, he is speaking of the Jewish people with the heritage of the Old Testament promises of God. And he's saying we have obtained a, a, an inheritance. But that inheritance, right, is one focused on the person of Christ. In him we have obtained an inheritance. But secondly, it is so divinely intentional Look at the terminology that is used. Having been predestined, right? So in other words, chosen beforehand, right? Marked out is what that term means before the event or the occasion would show itself. So he has destined us, but he has, or destined these individuals, right? He has destined them previously. He has chosen them out intentionally beforehand. And he's done that according to the purpose of his will, That's a term that means to put something in place. In other words, God, if you look at the Old Testament, it's almost like saying that as Paul examines the people of promise in the Old Testament from Abraham onward, it's almost like God had looked and said, yeah, I chose this route for you, and I have placed you exactly where you're supposed to be. This is the purpose, right? This is according to my purposes for my people. And goes on. The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of of his will. God is the one that is working. If there's nothing else that you gain from this, uh, this prayer of blessing, it is clearly that God is the one that from beginning to end has shaped and formulated everything that is about salvation in the gospel. Right? From before he laid the foundation of matter and the universe, he had an idea of all of humanity. He knew them all, and he chose some for himself. And in the same context, he is saying that when you look at the people of the Old Testament, God had granted to them, he had, he had chosen them for an inheritance. He had predestined them to it, right? He, he had a purpose for them in it. And that he was himself working. The term means to, to be energized, to use your energies to some effect. And he has been working all things according to the counsel of his will, according to the wisdom that is his will. And that term will always includes the desire. It's God's, not just his plan, because, you know, that's what he does. He's some supercomputer. You know, he's, what is that, chat, GPTB? Whatever, right? Like, he's not just an AI in the sky. He has an affection. 
He chooses because he desires to choose, because he lovingly chooses, because this is what he wants. And it is his divine, intentional design and affectionate will that has enabled him to choose out a people for himself so that they might obtain a gospel heritage, so that they might be promised an inheritance to come that is eternal life and eternity spent with a loving gracious, and absolutely holy and perfect Heavenly Father. It's been God's plan all along. In fact, just consider the words that are used here, right? right? We saw the word predestined, right? meaning that God like, chose this from before everything else is laid out. Purpose, like, it's not just haphazard. God has intended this, right? He's, he didn't go, oh, that's kind of nice. It's not kids playing with, you know, water streams and then throwing rocks in and then it's diverted and they think, oh, that's kind of cool that that accidentally happened. There's no accident. He has chosen this. He has purposed this. He energizes himself. He does stuff. He makes creation, right? He causes your life. He has placed you in exactly where you are today. He works, And he does it all according to the counsel of his will, his pleasure, his desire, his intentions. This is not a robot God. It's not a, I'm an angry God sometimes, let me turn on my righteous anger, right? And other times I am really merciful and loving, let me turn on my mercy God, right? This is the fullness of a God we'll never fully comprehend, who is so immense in all that he does, and in much of what he does, he would like us to know that his power, his sovereignty, his design and his intention for all of creation has at his, as its center his own glory in the rescue of people, in the rescue of sinners like you and me, in the helping of broken lives. Like when Romans 1.16 says, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, why, why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? He's not saying, I've never been in situations where I have been put to shame because of the God. Constantly ridiculed, harassed, right? Persecuted. Now he's saying, I'm not ashamed of that. I don't find the gospel to ever shame me, and I don't find it to be a source of shame in my life. Why? Because the power of God. So when Scripture talks about God's power... Right? In particular, the, the magnificence of the divine ability to create and to give life, it uses it in two broad categories. One, in all of creation. He's the one that gives life and, and meaning and purpose to everything beautiful, excellent, exquisite, and wondrous in this universe. And then the second category is in the salvation of sinners. He displays his power, his purpose, his intention, and his love. And giving an inheritance to those that don't deserve it. And here in particular, Paul is calling out his own people. And he's saying, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance because we've been predestined according to his purpose, right? Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so there's no accident. Nothing is arbitrary. You aren't here on accident to hear a message on accident. You haven't found this church just, just by happenstance or just by luck. The Lord is guiding you to these things. And perhaps he's demanding of you to bend your knee, to break your pride, and to come, right, and to beg the mercy of our God and to know that he is more than willing to rescue you from your sins. 
obtained by divine intention, but also to the praise of his glory. Now, this is the second of three times that the idea of God's glory uh, must be praised. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? That, That throughout this song of praise, one of the reasons to praise is because in the end, all of it will be to God's glory. That it is meant to be for the glory of God, that he would be exalted, and that, that all things will, will give him the blessing, the praise, the glory that he deserves. Verse 12 says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Now, I take that phrase to mean that Paul is saying that we, meaning the Jewish people with that wonderful Old Testament heritage and the promises of God, in particular, the promises that aim at a Messiah, an anointed one, promised in the scriptures, a son of David who would sit on the throne forever. And in other parts of the prophets that this one would cleanse us from our unrighteousness. They would establish perfect peace on earth. That the nations would be drawn to him and that we would be a priesthood, a royal people established to glorify God through the person of this Messiah. It was them who were always first to hope in the Christ, which is Christos, anointed one, just a, a Romanized word that refers to the Messiah, right? Same idea. We were the first to hope in this Messiah. And if you have Jewish friends and they, they practice the Passover Seder at one point, right, um, during one of the cups, I forget which one now, right, but they'll send one of the kids to go check the front door. And they're instructed to go check the front door to see if Elijah's there. Why, why would they want to check if Elijah? Because the, the scriptures promised that a forerunner, Elijah, a voice in the wilderness would cry out, just before the Messiah arrives. And in their minds, the Messiah has never arrived. But we know from the scriptures that the Messiah has arrived, that Elijah was John the Baptist, that the voice in the wilderness has already proclaimed that there's one greater than me, there's one that John the Baptist is unworthy to untie his sandals, one who has come to take away the sins of the world. See, that's the Messiah. And so So when Paul says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, he's talking about the richness of a heritage that placed their hope, their ambition, their future faith, right? All things that are eternal in the person, in a Messiah. They did do that. And so many of them missed it. So many of them missed him. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. I mentioned Romans 1.16, and I'll read the entirety of that verse for you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But then listen to the next phrase, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why does Paul make that, distingu- that disti- distinction? Well, he does that because in Romans, as well as in Ephesians, and really through a lot of his letters, he makes a distinction of those that were part of God's promise all the way back from the Old Testament, how Christ is a fulfillment of that. He hasn't left them behind. This is exactly what he has said would happen for them and to them for the sake of eternity, right? And he promised that way from the beginning. We... The Gentiles, a term that means the the nations, the goyim, we are the other people, and we have been grafted in. We have been included into that. And so even in Romans, it makes it so clear that this is the power of God displayed, the salvation of everyone who believes, 
to the Jews first, not first because they're more important, but first because they're the ones that he originally made a promise to. But then the rest of us, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, even to the Koreans, right? I'm, I'm Korean, right? So, right, to all of us. So that th- those who were first to hope in, in Christ have seen the glory of God displayed in the person of Jesus Christ and what he has what he has sent his son to accomplish. And this is all be to the praise of his glory. We, we so often um, walk around and forget the magnificence of God's purposes in preparing from the Old Testament onward, right, for the arrival of the son. But, but when, we, when we forget and we diminish like the plan of salvation that God has set in motion from the fall in the garden all the way to the end of the age, we start to miss out on why all of this should be to the ultimate praise of God's glory. He has destined fallen human beings, undeserving of his kindness, to find grace, to find mercy, a mercy they can't, they, they, they can't earn, a mercy that they certainly don't, don't deserve, and there's nothing about them in particular that we could say, okay, I get it. I get why, I get why they saved Nam, right? Nam part. He's really a holy person even without Christ. Nonsense, right? Even with Christ, we struggle with our sins. Why would he rescue you? Why would he rescue me? And the answer is, I don't know. But it's the, the ultimate answer is because that's the kind of God we worship. So we ought to worship. And if your worship has been lukewarm, if your desire for the things of God have been lukewarm, it's because you have forgotten the heritage that extends from God's people in the Old Testament all the way through the end of the age. It's not because God has done less or because your life is not a a miracle of salvation. It's because you've been dulled by so many other things that seem so much more attractive or important to you than that which is the ultimate purpose for which all things have been created. It is so that all things might be to the praise of his glory. In particular, the Jewish heritage, the Jewish inheritance in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Do we live like that? Right? Do the Jewish people live like that? Not all of them. But praise God that some do. God will be glorified. He'll be glorified because of his immense an immeasurable grace and love towards his people. And so he hasn't abandoned his people, his Old Testament people, and he's included his new people. And that would be us, the Gentile, most of us. I shouldn't assume that all of you guys aren't Jewish. Maybe some of you are blessed with Jewish heritage. God bless you, verses 11 and 12. The rest of us, verses 13 and 14, right? Look at verses 13 and 14. The Gentile inclusion in Christ. <clears throat> in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Let's begin here in the first part of verse 13. In him you also. See, so notice that not so subtle shift of personal pronouns. You say, well, you know, sometimes we do that in our language. You know, we shift personal pronouns, you know, as we're talking, as we're writing and stuff. Yeah, you and I might, but the inspired, right, author of Scripture does not. 
God, the Holy Spirit, inspiring Paul, has intentionally given us the we's in verse, you know, verses 11 and 12 and given us the you's right, in verses 13 and verse 13. In him you also, talking now about these newcomers, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's the Old Testament people of God, right? They were rescued by God from their sins in Christ, the exact same way that we, the New Testament people, are uh, rescued um, by God from our sins in Christ. In Him, you also. Now, this is the mystery that He's going to unpack later. And then not mystery like, you know, God intentionally hid it and he was trying to hide it from everybody. But mystery in terms of, of that mysterion, something that, was, that wasn't clear before. But that now God has revealed and made clear for us by the time of the New Testament, by the time of the New Covenant. And that mystery is that Christ is not just for the Jewish people, but he is for all people, for all sinners who have placed their faith in him. Right? Jewish people, a tremendous heritage. The Gentile people of faith now grafted into that same heritage. So he's saying, you also, the also is important. We're the same. We're included in. And when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, believed in him, we found ourselves to be sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Here's a few things we want to make sure that we, we, we categorically cover in the first part of verse 13. We are saved by gospel truth. We're saved by gospel truth. And this is what I mean by that, right? It says, it says here a few things. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Well, one thing it says that there was a hearing. And I, the idea of, of hearing is not so much that you, know, that you put your auditory right, perception to the test. It's not like, you know, like sometimes like you, you listen to music in the background. I don't know if you guys study Right, with music in the background. I do, but I, for me, and I, some of you guys can, but I don't. I, I, can't, I can't play a song that has lyrics, right? So, you know, I have, I have a, a soundtrack. You know, you guys could, if you have Spotify, you could subscribe to IBC Worship. You guys know that? And so you can listen to some of the songs that we sing. And then um, as, as they're singing, if they're singing the lyrics and it's a little bit loud, like as I'm concentrating, I'm reading, then all of a sudden it just bleeds in Whatever they're singing is what I'm reading. And then even though I'm reading something totally different, it's like all of it starts to get confused in my mind because the verbal nature of words, right? Well, this is what we're talking about. If I put on an instrumental and there's no lyrics, then I can hear. I exercise my auditory perceptiveness, my ability to listen to sounds and to music, and I just let that set kind of a general mood. It's kind of a canvas, right? It's just, a, just an empty canvas by which I could read, I could write, I could, I could do stuff. And after a while, it is the playlist, my instrumental playlist has gone through like, I don't know, 20, 30 songs, and I didn't even realize it. Why? Because I'm not listening Right? As if it is words or as if it's supposed to change anything. All it is is the background music to what I am thinking about, to the words that I'm concentrating on. And so when scripture talks about hearing the word of truth, th this isn't talking about listening to the background noise or listening to the background music. This isn't the elevator music. I take that back. A lot of elevator music has lyrics, right? Right, yeah. 
But lyrics we don't care about, so maybe it's still elevated, right? This isn't just talking about like, like you've, you've exercised your capacity, right, to kind of take in sound. I don't, I don't know what's going on with my mic right now. I apologize. I should just hold it like this. Yeah, I, dude, I, didn't, I didn't do anything, but, you know, the, the mic is acting all weird. Anyway, as you guys are listening to me, right, like you could zone out even words that are given to you, right, but still listen. So, you know, like when your parents or your teacher, you say, are you listening to me? You're like, yeah, I'm listening to you. I think you said this and that. And like a recording, you compare it back what they said. But what they mean is, did you understand what I said? And does that make an impact to your heart? Right? The interesting thing is in the Old Testament Hebrew, there isn't a singular expressive word that means obedience, that he obeyed. The term is actually he listened. Right? It uses the same idea of hearing to say, oh, and he heard the word of the Lord, or he listened to the word of the Lord. And even as I say listened, right, we make that slight caveat even in our English, and we mean that, oh, he listened to me. He took my advice to heart, and he believed that what I said was true. So there is a hearing, a receiving, of believing, but it is all in the word of truth. And this is where I think it's really significant. The word of truth is equated to the gospel of salvation. Do you see that? Even in the way that that's phrased out for us in verse 13. In him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, comma, the gospel of salvation. So it's like the word of truth is the gospel of salvation. It tells us something about the gospel, about what it means to listen and obey the gospel, what it means to hear the gospel, which is the word of truth. It tells us, one, that the word of God for our salvation is verbal. It is words, words of truth. You realize the ultimate value of us as human beings communicating is that we might understand it's God's communication to us. That is the ultimate value. And so young parents, moms whom we just celebrated and now are trying to exhort, right? Um, The value and purpose of making sure your kids have an education is not so they get a good job. That's not a bad thing. That's a a good thing, right? We, We hope that they would get a good job. It's not so that they better themselves in some ways that that is intellectual or maybe even emotional, which is, again, isn't a bad thing. The ultimate purpose of us having words and those words having depth and meaning and being verbal and being poetic and inciting reaction, etc. The value of words, of words to be written, of words to be read is so that we might understand God's communication to us because wonderfully and excellently and so wisely, God has chosen to communicate to us in words, in truth words, in truth words that are perspicuous. Perspicuous? The perspicuity of Scripture. One of the great terms that you should learn, tongue twister terms, right? It means simply that God has given us His truth in human language. Language that's accessible to us. This isn't one of those weird, you know, Bhagavad Gita's and all, all these kind of weird, kind of, you know, codified religious texts where you're supposed to read it and you're supposed to feel something. And as you read weird stuff, you feel weird feelings. And as a result of that, that's how God communicates to you in some weird feeling stuff way. No, God, throughout all of Scripture, 
right? Look at Psalm 119, like this incredibly long song just about the value and the wonder of God's word given to us in truth. The whole purpose of all of God's revelation is it is verbal revelation. It is codified for us. It is inspired in scripture. It is frozen in time. It is unchanging in its words and its dimension of truth so that it is perspicuous. Perspicuous? I'm struggling with that. The perspicuity of scripture means that it is understandable by human beings who know language. We still have to study language, right? But the whole point is that God's word is understandable to us. God hasn't rescued us. The gospel of salvation is not some kind of special spell. You don't show up into a a candlelit room and then read off certain passages and all of a sudden this amazing thing happens to you and you're transformed and you're given these superpowers. Can't confess, the kids have been playing um, the new um, Zelda game. And so I, I don't know why that just kind of came to me. Like you go and you, you get something in their new empowered hand and then you get some superpower. Right? That's not us. We are not supernaturally charged by some general kind of weird experience. No, we have the word of God. So when we have questions about how should we conduct ourselves in this situation, we look to the word of God. If we ask ourselves, well, how should we think about who God is? We look to the word of God. We don't decide for ourselves or in a council room or in some kind of meditative state. We go to the word of God. It is so rationally codified, verbal, and accessible. Have we listened to the word of truth, the gospel of salvation? Can you read it? Can you think about it? Romans 10 gives us that great statement, how Were they, talking about the unbelievers, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Say, okay, so they need to hear him. Well, what does hearing him look like? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Someone's supposed to speak these words to them. And towards the end of that, right, a couple verses later, talking about the same thing in Romans 10, he says, so faith comes from hearing... We agree that. And hearing through the word of Christ. And think about that phrase. The English phrase captures that well. It's weird. How do you hear through the word of Christ? What does it mean that the word of Christ is the agent of us listening? It's not like the word of Christ makes us listen to sounds more audibly or better. The idea is that our hearing, our obedience, our understanding of, 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 of what we are and who God is and what he has accomplished for us in Christ, that our understanding of that comes through the message of Jesus Christ. We listen and obey because we have heard it in his truthfulness. The gospel, which means good news of our salvation. Can I point out something else to you? I love in in this particular passage. Um, It's that phrase, that second part of verse 13, the gospel of your salvation. You you could drop the personal pronoun, right? And you still have the same sense of it. It's the gospel of salvation, the word of truth that you also listened to, that you also obeyed, that caused you to believe in him. So it's emphatic or it places emphasis on the fact that Paul inserts the, the possessive pronoun, your, it, it tells us that it's not just any good news. It is the good news of your salvation. This is how you got saved. This is the power of the good news of the message. That sinners, 
can be saved from their sins and all the things that we have already read that, that through the person of Christ that we might be redeemed, that we might be adopted, that we might have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, that all of those things can happen to you. God has not left us in the dark unless we think that because the doctrine of election means that God has selected us from before time began. So on our part, then it's like, oh, I'm either in or I'm not in. That's all on God. There's an element that that is absolutely true, and I'm not going to shy away from his sovereignty. But from our limited human perspective, what does it look like? It looks like all those that would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. We have agency in this. We have a hearing in this. And for these, these wonderful Gentile Christians that are now included in, 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 in God's inheritance of salvation and eternity. He says, this is the gospel of your salvation. We are saved by gospel truth, by hearing gospel truth, by thinking of gospel truth, by understanding the truth of scripture that, that teaches us about God, his holiness, our sinfulness, and his willingness to send his own son to take our place in punishment so we might have life. We, we are sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Look at verses 13, the rest of verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, um, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The and believed in him. I know it's almost like I ran that over because it kind of fits in both. The we heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed. We heard and believed, those two things kind of go together, right? You you understood the truth of who God is, of who you are. And you recognize your absolute dependence upon a Savior in Jesus Christ. And you, you heard that message. You believed in Christ. Right? We get that. But the reason why I saved it for this section, for the second point B, is because the, the, um, the idea of him, we believing in him is, is simultaneous with we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's, that's the way that Paul is trying to write this here. He's trying to say that faith is not only words or creeds, but it's in a person. You believed in him, not just in certain words, just as in certain concepts or doctrines. You believed in him, and as you believed in him, simultaneously, you were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. You believed and were sealed. So see, like we could go to the front end, and we could say, you heard and you believed, right? And then we take this end, and it's, you believed and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's a few different ways that seal is used, right, in the ancient world. And the, the one that I think is being referenced here is it's the mark of ownership. You know, if you go to Texas, there's still um, steer, steer ranches, is that what they call them? You know, they're, they're like cows, only we're going to eat them. You know, that's, that's steer. And then so that, that's why they have so much meat and steak and they do brisket really well, right? Like, so you go to Texas and then if they, if they go to a steer ranch, how do you know, like, if they're just, you know, if one runs out into the street, which I imagine there's not that many near the street. Nevertheless, all right, if you see a steer, a big old, what, what is steer? A big cow? A cow's a female, right? A bull? 
It's so confusing. But anyways, long-horned bull of a cow walking down the street. How do you know who owns this male cow? Right? This steer. I don't know what the right terminology. Sorry to all you Texans who are very angry with the Southern California kid. Right? But you would know because they branded. I don't know. It sounds a little cruel. I think it is a little cruel. Probably painful, right? Like you have some symbol. For me, it might be like NP for Nam Park. Right? Nam Park Ranch. And then I, I put that, that metal into the fire until it's like, like, like red hot. And I go, hey, Nelly, hang on a second. Right? And then you just sear that NP into their rear side. And that seals them and demonstrates that that cow belongs to me. It belongs to whatever that, se- that, that, that searing, right, NP is the mark of ownership. And that's... One of the ways that this term sealed is used. And I think that's what it's talking about. How do we know that we belong to somebody, to something, to some, you know, wondrous God who has been so gracious and kind to us? How do we know we belong to God? The Holy Spirit comes to indwell. He is the, he's the mark. His presence in our life is evidence of new life in him. Yeah, you know I, that I am very fond of the idea of God's evidence of his love for us in that, um, that even when we're going through difficult times, we always know God loves us. How do we know? Because he sent his son to die for us. And that's true. But let me, let me give it to you from Romans 5. Romans 5, starting verse 3, says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That's not pleasant for us, but that's true. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope, listen to this, does not put us to shame. The hope that we place in God never will turn back and make us ashamed. Like, oh, I'm so ashamed I should have never hoped in Christ. Never. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And you say, oh, that's kind of nice. God has poured his love into our... Listen, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The evidence of God's love, according to Romans 5, verse 5, is that the Holy Spirit has been poured into us, that he indwells us. He is the seal, the sign that we belong to someone in love. And the rest of that, that the next couple of verses after that, Romans 5, is for, we, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were still sinners and Christ died for us. For, no one, would, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps... For a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there is Christ's love for us, and there is the Holy Spirit poured into us, the seal and the, the, the sign that we are his and that God loves us in Christ. It's, so, it's the promised spirit. John 14, Jesus says that the helper would come. And I think even, even more helpfully, Right? You add on top of that, all the way back to Ezekiel 36, the word of God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you in that day, right? In the new covenant day. And you'll be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you, listen, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We're saved by the gospel of truth. We are sealed by the promised spirit. And then, I don't know when I got to the point C. Maybe the guys in the back are trying to hurry me along. 
that's, that's fair. I'm not, I'm not mad at that, right? Verse 14, all right? To the great, he who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let me just say that last, that first part of verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So the spirit, right, is our seal. And he guarantees our inheritance. The term for guarantee here, it means a down payment or the first installment. is like when you purchase the car, you have to put a down payment. That's, that's the term. I think, though, the kind of cool thing is in modern Greek, um, the arabone, right? The, the word, the Greek word here refers to your engagement ring. It, 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 is the, it is the precious token of a promise made, right? And that's the way we're supposed to look at it. The Holy Spirit is our engagement ring. He is our guarantee of that inheritance. What inheritance? The same inheritance that was for the Jewish people from the Old Testament onward. We are grafted into the same coverage, the same inheritance, the same glorious reality of being with Christ and with God for all of eternity. And the beauty of that term, right, that term for guarantee means that it is all a foretaste. It is all a pre-taste. It is all the things that we are going to experience and enjoy one day so that Every time you experience love, joy, peace, pi- love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control in this life through the Spirit from Galatians 5.22, anytime you feel a sense of any, just a foretaste of what is to come eternally. And think about this. So do you, you remember that, that exultant, overwhelming sense of joy? When your team... Eliminate another team that some of you guys care about for the playoff. I almost said it gleefully, and I just felt bad as I look into your faces. Right? Like, right, right. Like, we, we have an exalted. We feel great when our team wins the Super Bowl or the championship. We, that overwhelming, that's a foretaste. That's just kind of the, the smell and the little, you know, I dip my finger in the sauce taste of what is to come. Right? Every time you feel like the sense of love, that love is reciprocated, that it's not just that you love unboundedly, but they love you, and you think, man, this is so wonderful, this is so great, just a taste, an appetizer for what is to come. When you feel like this is where I want to be, I'm in perfect peace, I feel so balanced, so perfect, this is wonderful, just a foretaste. I mean, we just keep going on and on, where they're talking about kindness, we're talking about, you know, every pledge, every good, it's just a pledge, a token, a taste of what is to come. That's the point. We are sealed by the promised spirit for tremendous things that are to come because, of that's, because that's the kind of God that we worship. And so the end of it is point C, and the end of this message is point C. So that the Lord would be praised. Verse 14 says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, all of it, the fullness of what salvation is meant to be for us in eternity, and all of it to the praise of his glory. He will be praised for his glorious grace towards us in Christ. Right? That's verse 6. Verse 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He will be praised for his glory in the salvation of the Jewish people in fulfillment of his promises to them, that was verse 12, so that we, the Jewish people, who were the first to open Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. 
And he will be praised for his glory and the salvation of us, the Gentile believers, and the guaranteed inheritance that is given to both Jews and Gentiles for all eternity. That's verse 14 we just read, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I just want to I just want to make sure that we are driving home a singular idea about God's glory. There will be a time when God for all of eternity will be praised for his glory. But the couple of times that God wants to express to us what his glory looks like, because I don't know what you think of when I think of God's glory. I'm just thinking of like, oh, right, like like this light coming down. I can't see, you know, you're too good. Right. Like we think of it in some kind of like, I don't know, some kind of experience, ecstatic way, which I think it includes that. But when God talks about his glory, when Moses asked God, hey, let me see your glory. He said, you can't see all of my glory. You would just die. You'll perish as a being. But in Exodus 34, God says, I'm going to show you my glory. You stand over here in the cleft of the rock. And then this is what it says that God does to review his glory. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the inequity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. As a result of this, Moses falls to the ground and he worships. And he seems to fully comprehend what is such a challenge for us. That the glory of God is best revealed in how he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. But don't get him wrong. He doesn't let things slide. Not at all. He will by no means clear the guilty. He visits the iniquity of fathers on children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Three and four generations, he will demonstrate his angry wrath. That's true. But for thousands of generations, he would demonstrate his mercy, his grace, and his love. We ought to be overwhelmed, but we will be overwhelmed when all of our limitations and sins are cleared out and we are in eternal glory and with like almost unimaginable capacities to think, to love, to act, to worship. In that day, all of it, all that God has done will be to the praise of his glory. And we will understand and will glorify him for all that he has done in the gospel. All that he has done in the gospel. I want to give you just one thought to close us off. What, what keeps you from this amazing salvation that he has offered to us in the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? What, what keeps you from the gospel and from his gracious love, his forgiveness, and the heritage of the gospel to come for eternity. What keeps you from that? And I'll just leave you with this thought. It's not him. Because everything we just read from verse 3 all the way to verse 14 tells us this is what God has orchestrated, what he has planned before he laid down anything, what he has sent his son to do, right? So to redeem, to forgive, to love, so that all of it will be to his glory, to his glory, to his glory. He has a vested interest in his glory being displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ rescuing your sins, rescuing you from your sins. 
So if something is keeping you back, it's not our God. And it's not the message. It's you. The message of Jesus Christ is offered to us because the glory of God is displayed for us in the offering of his son for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we think about the gospel again and the amazing heritage of the blessing that it brings, we are thankful for your grace to us. We ask for your enablement, for your kindness. We ask that those that, Lord, that should think about these things, Lord, might meditate upon the things of the gospel and believe on the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be convicted by the fact that it is not you that hesitates in bringing us to yourself. It's us. It's our pride. It's our sin. It's our delight in things that are lesser than our great God. Lord, may we begin to enjoy the foretaste of every good thing that you intend to give us in all of eternity in this life. So we give you the praise. We give you the glory. And praise you for all things in Jesus' name. Amen.